Uh, so as it is uh, New Year, I would love to hear some of your New Year's resolutions. Uh, so if you have one, please just shout it out. It can be serious or less so, and kids, you can shout out yours as well, if your parents say yes. Anybody have one they are happy to share? To have more resolutions. Nice. <laughs> uh, anybody else got more? For the intro, all I wrote was, ask for people's resolutions. So if we don't get any, this is really going to go south. <laughs> to get fit. Nice. That is a classic one. Nice. Any more? Well, that's fine. It's, it's great that we don't have that many resolutions. <laughs> I was going to just, the alternative was to just give you a whole list of mine, but I thought that might just be kind of like my own kind of therapy sort of thing, and that's not really what we're here for. Uh, but I'll tell you some of mine anyway. So, so Get Fit uh, is also one of mine. Uh, there's other classics, uh, Saving Money. Um, there is some, some nice ones, like Telling More People That I Love Them and that sort of thing. Uh, there's uh, I'd Like to Climb a Mountain, uh, I guess. Uh, and at this time, uh, even if you don't want to say it out loud, a lot of us will have New Year's resolutions, or we might not go quite so specific. A lot of us will have goals for the year. Uh, at this point, it kind of uh, going into the new year often feels like a bit of a clean slate, an opportunity to, to kind of reinvent ourselves a little bit or to aspire to something that we have kind of failed on before. Uh, and in a church, uh, with the idea of New Year's resolutions, uh, there's a whole load of places in the Bible that we might want to turn to. Uh, you could open at pretty much any page and see, this is a good command, this would be a good thing to hold up for the year. Uh, it could be to, uh, to pray more, to turn the other cheek more, uh, to greet more people with a holy kiss, or, or to give more money to the church, or a whole list of different things. One thing I thought was particularly apt, and this is where we're going to go to today, is the commands that were given in Deuteronomy 6. Because the context that, that we read into in Deuteronomy 6 is that the people of Israel are at a point where they are kind of forming a new identity. So they've been in slavery before this for just over 400 years in Egypt. And while being a distinct people living in a distinct area of Egypt at the time, it is natural that so much of their identity as a nation and as individuals was wrapped up in the Egyptian culture. That so much of who they were was defined by Egypt. And yet in coming out of that slavery, they have an opportunity to figure out who it is they're going to be as a people. A blank slate. Who are they going to be? And Deuteronomy 6 is God giving them the greatest commandments. If you're going to be any people, if Israel is going to be known for one thing, God wants it to be the words we see in Deuteronomy 6. So if you have a Bible, please turn there. It's also going to come up on the screen. And we're going to read the first nine verses. It's Deuteronomy 6. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, 
that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Amen. So as Israel sets out on its journey to the promised land, God's command is the thing that is to to overarch all that they do. That command that we read in verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Uh, it's one of those verses that we, we hear quite a lot, especially verse 5. Um, the kids have it on one of their sheets to color in. Um, but I fear that often what we do, and it happens on this sheet, is that we isolate verse 5 from verse 4. And we recognize that, hey, this is a big call for us to love God with all of ourselves. And we hold that up, but, but if we hold that verse up kind of isolated, we kind of make it, to some extent, all about us. Now, this is about our love for him. And it's important to recognize that, but it's really important that we get the balance of verse 5 with verse 4. Now verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, and as a church, as a, a monotheistic religion, we, we kind of, uh, we read that verse and we're like, yeah, okay. But that verse is completely countercultural back in the day. So as we thought about their identity being uh, inevitably wrapped up to some degree in Egypt, Well, Egypt is a country that wouldn't say that our God is one or that there is one God. They would have said there's a multitude of gods. They would have said there are so many different gods for so many different things and all of them are worthy of worship. All of them are worthy of at least some of your heart and some of your soul and some of your might. And if Israel was to look around at other nations besides Egypt's, to try and figure out how they are to worship God or our God. Again, they would have seen a whole multitude of different gods that people would have worshipped with some of their heart, their soul, and their strength. And so what God is telling them is that none of these gods that you've heard about before are worth a penny of your worship. They are not worth any of your love at all. That only this God is worthy of worship. That only this God, only he is worthy of their love. 
In other places in scripture, uh, God paints out maybe a bit more clearly or explicitly why that is. And if we think about when he's saying this to the people, he's saying to this to the people after they've been in slavery for hundreds of years. And God eventually brought them out of that. But they might be wondering in their hearts, and they, they grumbled this out loud, well, If God was so worthy of our love, why did he leave us in that place for so long? If God deserves our love, why would he let his people be in slavery for hundreds of years? What they had to go on to encourage them that God was worthy of their love is verse 3 and the end of verse 2. Keep these which I command you all the days of your life that your days may be long meaning that there would be a nation uh, that exists for a long time. And the promise of verse 3, that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. They are able to love God by looking at what God had done in the past. And God being identified as the God of your fathers, he's saying of Abraham and Isaac, that is the God who is calling you to love him. The God who made promises that they would be a great nation. The Lord who has brought them out of slavery, brought them out of the most powerful nation in the world at the time, and will give them a land of milk and honey. For us, that question of, is this God worthy of our love, is still a question asked a lot today. There's a a famous uh, etching onto a wall of a concentration camp. Uh, The words are written, if there is a God, he will have to beg for my forgiveness. If there is a God, he will have to beg for my forgiveness. There is still a a sense that this God who calls us to love him, maybe to some, he just doesn't seem like he deserves it. This God doesn't seem that good. If all these bad things can happen to people, if all these bad things can happen to us, why on earth would we love him? And not just love him a little bit, but to love him with all our heart and all our soul and all our strength. And there's so many places in the Bible we could turn to to convince us that he is worthy of love. And the Bible would want us to turn and look at the cross. So 1 John 4.19 says we love because he first loved us. And that love that he has shown us is shown in so many places. It's been there since before the foundation of the world, but the love is most clearly shown as we look at Jesus on the cross. That on the cross there is such a love that that though we would reject God, though we might claim to love God, so much of our heart, our soul, and our strength is directed elsewhere. That though there is nothing about us that ought to make God choose us, that he loves us. And loves us to the point of the death of his own son. 
so that our rejection of him would be met by his embrace. That he would welcome us in. That Jesus Christ would die in the place of our sin where we ought to because he loves us. And so today you might be wondering, uh, and you might be going through circumstances that are also that are truly, truly difficult. And it might be hard in the moment to find God there or to find God's love there. But if you're going to get an impression of God's love, please don't focus in on the circumstances uh, that are currently before you. If you're wondering, look at the cross. It's a testament of love that stands for all time. A love that cannot be taken away by us or by anybody else. A certain love shown to us, given to us in Jesus. And so if we get that we are to love the Lord our God, that he is worthy of love and worship, we might wonder, well, okay, how do we actually go about this? Uh, Because to love him is far more than just a fuzzy feeling that we might think love would be. But love in the Bible, love as God commands it, is so closely wrapped up in the idea of obedience. Look at the last three verses of chapter 5 and the first three verses of chapter 6. I'm not going to read that all again. But each verse is another retelling of the same verse. It is, do all that I have commanded you. Do what I command you. Listen to the rules that the Lord has commanded me to teach you. Follow the commandments. It's just six times again and again. It's like when you go to maybe meet somebody new and you have to rehearse how to introduce yourself like, Hi, I'm Dan. Hi, I'm Dan. And you go through all of those before you settle on which one you want to go with. Moses basically decided, I'm just going to stick them all in. Because this is so important that they get, if you're going to love God, you've got to do all the things. And the next few chapters, and so much of scripture walks that out in obedience in more specific steps. How do we actually obey God? If we are loving him by obeying, okay, well, what does God want us to do? Now, this isn't just uh, an Old Testament thing that we might want to, to get rid of with the New Testament. But Jesus repeats it in John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now that's a really hard call. There are hundreds of commandments in the Bible. And lots of them are really hard. And we know that well, even this idea of loving him with all of ourselves is something we definitely haven't measured up to. It's definitely something that we understand and we hear and we think is good, but our lives tell a completely different story. And the reality is that this is because dead people cannot love. That naturally as people, before coming to know Christ, we are dead in sin. 
And dead people cannot love. Romans 8 uh, paints it out really clearly as we read before. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Before knowing Christ, that is the situation for all of us. Hostility to God, not submitting to his commandments, indeed not being able to. Dead people can't love. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. I would really hate for us to, to hear that, that without Christ this is impossible to do, but then to, to continue using that sort of language as we become Christian, as we sit or stand as members of Christ's body. I want us to realize that as we hear these commandments, we really can do this. Not because we might be so strong, uh, not because we are really good or we really love following rules, but because the Spirit of God dwells in us. That Christ who fulfilled the whole law, who followed everything, who loved God with all his heart, his soul, and his strength, is the one who resides in you. And though you still sin, the very deepest part of you, the part that forms your identity, is the Spirit of God dwelling in you. And above anything else, that Spirit of God loves God. That at the core of who you are is somebody who really does love God. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. And this is because we do not celebrate or worship just a Jesus who died on the cross to show his love for us, but a Jesus who rose again to now reside in us and to sit on the throne. That it is he who is our perfect obedience. He is the one who we get to to hold up and say, yes, I have sinned, but Jesus' blood covers me. That Jesus' resurrection gives me life, makes me a new person, a new person alive to God. But there's also a huge part of this story that tells us why this really doesn't fit into being a nice New Year's resolution. So with a New Year's resolution, uh, what often happens, and for some may have already happened, uh, is we fail. And we might have failed on day two, we might fail on day 30, we might fail on day 100. And in failing to live up to those resolutions, what happens is we have to wait until the new year starts. If we failed already, it's another 12 months before we can start that resolution again. So if we're to hold Deuteronomy 6 up as as a New Year's resolution or just that, or to not recognize the God behind that, then we'll be pretty distraught already because each and every one of us will have failed at our resolution. But the mercy of God does not wait for the year to change. As Lamentations says, the mercies of God are new every morning. 
that we know who God calls us to be, that we know who we want to be, and that we fail, but that his mercy is always there. That we do not need to wait a long time to to try and be good enough again. But each moment, each sin, we get to turn to Jesus who offers us mercy, who offers himself, who says, though you have failed, my love is set on you. That my love will not depart you. That though through this year you will have ups and downs, moments when uh, you feel on fire for Jesus and moments when you really don't, my mercies are new. And my mercies are directed at you. That I have chosen you, that I have loved you with an everlasting love. That the one whose love endures forever has his love set on you. The Israelites, after they heard this commandment, God uh, spelled it out for them how they were to remember this some more. Uh, It's verses 7 to 9. And basically in these verses, uh, God wants to remind them again and again of the commandment he's given. That you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Uh, But he knows, uh, and if you are a parent uh, or a wife, you kind of know the feeling uh, of telling somebody something, thinking they should probably write it down because they're going to forget, but they don't do that. God tells them to to write it on your house, to to teach it to your children, talk to them about it when you sit in the house, bind them as a sign on your hands. Write them on the doorposts of your house. Around them, God wants to constantly remind them, hey, love the Lord your God. Because he knows that they are so prone to wander from that. And we can think of, of great ways, and, and we hope that, that gathering each week on a Sunday, that, that being part of a small group, that being in fellowship with other believers will remind us that we are to love God. And we hope that they will contribute to us loving him more. But we know like Israel that we are going to fail at that too. But we get to look forward to a day where they will be failing no more. Where we will not have to write to love God on our doorposts. Because Jesus Christ will be in our very midst. That there will be absolutely zero part of us that would want to do anything other than love him. That when he returns and we are in his perfect presence, we will love him with our whole strength, our heart, and our soul. That we will see Jesus face to face and we will love him because he loved us first. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much that despite our lack of love towards you, despite our love of so many other things, you sent your son Jesus out of love for us. 
that he has given us new life with your spirit dwelling in us, enabling us to follow this commandment to love you. Lord, help us this day and this week and this year and this lifetime to love you with all of ourselves. And thank you that that when we fail so desperately at that, that your mercies are new every morning. Amen.